2007, October 17, Lecture 20, Tides. Okay, so we're talking about gravity this week. In the last couple of days, we introduced the law of gravity, and yesterday we talked about how gravity can tell you what kind of orbits you should be in, how Newton was able to reformulate Kepler's three laws of motion to instead of being empirical descriptions of just orbits of planets around the sun, to be generalized to any two objects orbiting around each other. But one of the things we haven't talked about, we talked about gravity, we talk about the masses of the objects, and we talk about how far apart the objects are. But I've been ignoring one other property of the objects, which may be important, but in a somewhat unexpected way. Objects have physical extent. The Earth is about 13,000 kilometers across, 40,000 kilometers in circumference. That size and the influence of gravity also has a bit of an effect. We've only seen it in one simple way. I'm standing here on the Earth. My center is 6,300 kilometers above the center of the Earth. And I can use that to predict the gravity force on me or the acceleration due to gravity on me. But today I want to talk about what happens when I have two bodies which are both have a certain physical extent, a radius, if you will and differences of the, of the gravitational force from one side of the body to the other. That gives rise to the phenomenon of tides. And so today's key idea is to talk about tidal effects, talk about differential gravitational effects. And we're going to use tides on the Earth and tides on the Moon as our primary example, but this is an entry point into a topic that we're going to see throughout the solar system. Tides are very important for determining the dynamical evolution of objects. So the main key idea today is to say that tides are caused by the difference between the moon's gravitational pull on the near and far sides of the Earth as seen from the moon. There are going to be a series of tidal effects that we can observe and measure which give us some insight into how tides work. We're going to see, for example, that the reason why the moon always keeps the same face towards the Earth is that it is tidally locked to the Earth in its orbit. It's been tidally synchronized. We're going to see that in addition to the moon, the moon being synchronized, there's an additional effect in which the Earth is actually being slowly, tidally braked. It's actually going to slow down the Earth's rotation over long periods of time. In fact, we can actually measure this. We can see changes in the length of the day because the Earth is rotating more slowly. And the mechanism by which that rotation goes more slowly is this tidal braking effect, the influence of the moon upon the Earth's oceans. And finally, we're going to see that in addition to making the Earth go more slowly, there's yet a third effect, and that is as the Earth moves more slowly on its rotation, it actually is causing the moon to recess. The moon's orbit is actually growing slightly larger. It's just a couple centimeters per year, but if you have a billion years or more to work with, it can actually get very large indeed. So there's three dynamical effects that come into play because of the action of tides and the exchange of energy among various components in the Earth-Moon-Sun system. We're going to use the Earth-Moon system as an example, but I'll, I'll say that as, this is just an entry point, as I said before. We're going to see tidal effects throughout the solar system. Today we're going to talk about how they work in detail so that when we see them later, we'll already get a clue as to what should be happening. Now, tides are an example of what I like to call seashore astronomy. If any of you have ever spent a significant amount of time by the ocean shore or by the shores of the Great Lakes, there are, in fact, tides in the Great Lakes, although they're more subtle in some places, you've experienced the effect of the daily uh, ebbing of the tide and the flow of the tide inward towards the shore. 
on some places on Earth, this in fact can be quite dramatic. But if you watch carefully over time, now I, I went to school at UC Santa Cruz, and my, my apartment was literally three-quarters of a mile from Seabright Beach. It was great, except Northern California beaches are really cold, so this was not a place to go swimming. But I like going down in the evenings and just walking along the beach and kind of clear my head after a day up at school. And over time, I started becoming a tide watcher, just like I've been a sky watcher for most of my life. I began to pay attention as I walked down the breakwater of when it was low tide and high tide. And you very quickly can notice that there are going to be two sets of tides a day. There are twice daily high tides when this water is as high as possible as it will be on your shore. And there are two low tides where the local sea level shrinks twice a day. And they come roughly out of sync with each other. The timing of these tides, however, is not governed by so much by the rotation of the earth as by the motion of the moon across the sky. So if you walk outside and you see high tide, you say, well, when's the next high tide going to be? It's not going to be 12 hours or half a day later. It's going to be 12 hours and 25 minutes later. The time between successive moonrises is 24 hours and 50 minutes, exactly twice the intertidal period, the high tide interval. Now, people recognize, people who lived in maritime areas recognize this from ancient times. They realize that if you watch when the moon rose and you wait again, the moon's going to rise at a slightly later time the next day. In fact, it rises 50 minutes later each day. And the reason, of course, is that the moon is moving around the earth as the whole earth-moon system is moving around the sun. And so the moon has to move that extra little bit. The earth has to turn an extra little bit. It has to turn an extra 50 minutes for the moon to come back over your local horizon to rise. And it was very quickly noted, all the way back the Greeks, everyone recognized this, that the intertidal period, 12 hours and 25 minutes, was exactly half the moonrise period. And that told you right away that the moon was the primary influence on the Earth's tides. In fact, we can now say that why the moon has that influence, of course, was very mysterious for millennia until Newton came along and said that all massive objects pull on all other massive objects with an equal and opposite mutual attractive force called gravity. And therefore, what we are seeing is the gravitational influence of the moon upon the Earth. The tides occur because the Earth-Moon-Me seashore configuration is being repeated on this 24-hour, 50-minute period. But then you've got to ask yourself, why is it that I don't get high tides every 24 hours and 50 minutes? Why is it every half that, exactly half that? Why is it 12 hours and 25 minutes? And the reason is because it's not a, a result of direct gravitational force, but actually of differential gravitational force. So here's a picture of what's going on. The moon is about, the moon here, off to one side, it's about 300,000, 340,000 kilometers away on average. The Earth, on the other hand, is a sphere which has a finite extent. That extent from one side to the other is the diameter, is 12,740 kilometers. Now, it means if I take the moon out at some position, and I've drawn it here very close, not to scale, the moon is going to be 12,700 kilometers closer to the near side of the Earth than the far side, where here near and far means the point directly beneath the moon on the Earth. So I've got a couple models here to sort of remind you of what's going on here. I've got the Earth here as a finite, finite size and the moon is a finite size. So you can see, for example, the way I've got this Earth, my inflated globe here, is the moon is closer to North America 
than it is over to Asia on the other side. And that difference is around 12,000 kilometers. Now, the gravitational force goes like one over distance squared. 12,000 kilometers out of 350,000 kilometers, the actual sort of Earth-Moon distance, which I'm not even close to, is going to be kind of small. It's about 7% difference of the gravitational force on the near side from the far side. So if I'm standing here in this configuration, a person standing on the shore in North America would feel a 7% stronger gravitational tug from the moon than a person standing on the far shore down in Asia because of that roughly 10, 12,000 mile difference, 10,000 kilometer difference in 350,000 kilometers. Furthermore, there's not only a, a, a difference front to back, which is kind of the obvious one, there's also a difference from side to side. The slight differences in geometry really do matter. So the way I've drawn the picture here is I have the Earth. There's the, a dot which will represent the center of the Earth. Kind of imagine I'm looking through a semi-transparent Earth here. If I look just along the line joining the center of the Earth to the center of the Moon, I expect there's a gravitational force along there. A person standing here would feel a stronger gravitational force, force from the Moon than a person standing at this location on the Earth. If you could stand at the center of the Earth, you would have a slightly larger force than from the far side, but less than on the near side, because the difference in distance is about 6,000 kilometers. But if you're standing up here at the North Pole, the line from you to the center of the moon is actually tilted at an angle. It's not through the center of the Earth. They're talking about the force that's on you here. So you can imagine you had a little gravity force meter saying how much force is there in the direction of the moon. I say, but it matters where the moon is. And that angle, again, because I've drawn it close, I'm exaggerating this a bit, is I get a gravitational force that appears to be pulling at an angle compared to what it would be for a person standing here just beneath the moon on the surface. Similarly, a person standing here on the southern hemisphere feels a similar tug towards the moon. They're the same distance apart as the person at the North Pole, but because they're south, they would feel the force kind of going up in this diagram, whereas the person in the north feels the force going down. So you can see what I get. I get a big force on one side and a little force on the other. If I have a force differential, I get a stretch. So along the line here, I get a big force and a little force, and the difference between these is to effectively have a stretch. Between the north and the south positions in this picture, I get a force component which is towards the moon, which can be thought of as a force component down into the Earth, plus a force component off in the same direction as along the exact Earth-Moon line. Whereas on the southern hemisphere, I get a force component up towards the center of the Earth, as well as a component which is towards the Moon. So I'm taking the Earth, and I'm kind of squeezing it vertically along a line that's perpendicular to the Earth-Moon direction. So I get this strong differential gravitational force, a difference in force from near side to far side, and a slight difference plus direction from top to bottom, perpendicular to my Earth-Moon line. Now the result of this, if I take out the general fall of the Earth around the Moon and the general fall of the Moon around the Earth, is I end up with a two-fold distortion of the Earth due to this difference in gravitational force. I get a dif the differential force from the from center to the outsides appears to be stretching the Earth along the Earth-Moon line and appears to be squeezing it at right angles to this line. So it's as if I take the Earth 
which is a reasonably big sphere, and I stretch it along the equator and squeeze it a bit along the poles. So the effect is not just simply a stretch, which is what the textbooks usually show you, but it's a stretch and a squeeze. And the squeeze occurs along all those directions that are at right angles to your Earth-Moon line. So the general effect is to stretch the Earth along the Moon-Earth line and squeeze the Earth at all right angles along that line, along the poles and along the sides compared to the direction to the Moon. So the result, which I'm going to grossly exaggerate in this graphic, is to literally distort the Earth. You take it from a nearly spherical shape and you distort it by stretching along the Earth-Moon line and squeezing along the perpendicular. This results in what are called two tidal bulges. The Earth is kind of bulging out of its normal spherical envelope here. These two tidal bulges, one faces the Moon, the other one faces away from the Moon. And that's why as the Earth rotates through its tidal bulges, I get one, two tidal tides per, high tides per day. Because as the Earth turns through the tidal bulge, it's going to be, your position is going to be lined up with the Moon exactly twice a day. It takes you, if I see the Moon here above my sky there, and then I start turning away, 12 hours away, the Moon is away, and I come back around again, but the Moon has moved a bit, so I come around 24 hours plus another. In that passage, I pass through the second bulge. So I have passed through one bulge, passed through the second bulge 12 hours and 25 minutes later, pass back through the first bulge again 12 hours and 25 minutes after that, and so on and so forth as the Earth turns around, but the Moon, of course, is continually turning as it moves, or continually orbiting as it moves around the sky. So I get two tidal bulges per day. I get the symmetric distortion. It isn't a teardrop distortion. It isn't the Earth just getting distorted by towards the Moon. It gets stretched away from the Moon as well. And that's the counterintuitive part of tides. I can sort of get the idea of sort of reaching out and grabbing something and pulling it, but it's kind of harder to think of what you're really doing as you're stretching the Earth and squeezing it symmetrically. And so you get this two-sided bulges and two general tidal squeeze along this perpendicular direction. So how big is the tidal bulge that's actually done? I've said I've had to grossly exaggerate that to make it visible on my PowerPoint slide. Well, if you think about most of the body of the Earth, the Earth is mostly rocky. So the rocky parts, the continents, the ocean floors, are really made of stiff stuff. The body tides that you expect from the Earth are going to be pretty small. They're only going to be about 30 centimeters, about one foot. So what we're really thinking is about a one-foot bulge on either side of the Earth separated by 12,700 kilometers. You wouldn't, know, you wouldn't see that from the outside. This picture of the Earth squashed like this is very grossly exaggerated. It amounts to, just like I said, about a foot directly underneath the moon, 30 centimeters. But water is a different matter. Water is fluid. It flows very freely. And so as a consequence, it isn't going to be bound by the stiff material forces that rock is. And so I'm going to get an ocean tidal flow where the oceans are going to flow up and be stretched into those tidal bulges. Out in the open ocean, if I get out, like say, right out in the middle of the uh, Pacific Ocean or the Atlantic Ocean, far away from any land masses, the amount of difference between high tide and low tide as I pass through the tidal bulge of the oceans can be about one meter. So now we go from one foot to about one meter's worth of tide. However, as I get near the shore, remember that what I'm doing is I'm turning 
the Earth is turning and rotating into its tidal bulge. And so as you rotate into the tidal bulge, the ocean waters suddenly feel that gravitational tug, and so the water actually begins to flow. And if you've ever had water flowing across a, a, a bottle or a, a tank or something like that with an irregular bottom, the flow patterns are going to be strongly influenced by what the, what the seafloor looks like and what the walls look like around the, the bay or something that you're into. And so locally, even though the general mid-ocean tide is only about a meter from high tide to low tide, when you actually get to some details of the actual seafloor shape, the actual shapes of bays and inlets, you can get tremendously larger local tides. The world champion for tides, at least certainly in our hemisphere, is up in Canada, up in Nova Scotia, in the Bay of Fundy, between Nova, Nova Scotia and um, New Brunswick. The Bay of Fundy can have tides in some sections of the bay more than 12 meters in difference between high tide and low tide. Not because the gravity of the moon is stronger there, but because it happens to be the funny shape of the shore and the funny shape of the bay actually leads to some large-scale flow waves that actually amplify the tidal flow. So here's this picture now. I'm going to, again, exaggerate the scale here. When you get the Earth, is rotating around its axis. So I'm looking down upon the Earth's axis from the northern hemisphere. It's rotating in a right-hand sense. And I've got the moon sitting off to one side. And I'm looking at the moon tides raised by the difference of gravity from the near side of the Earth to the far side. The main rocky body of the Earth is barely going to respond at all because rock is stiff. You, know, if you, you can't try to squeeze a rock sometime. It's really hard. Now compare that to squeezing a water balloon. Water balloon could deform very easily. So the ocean acts like a water balloon with a big rock in it. Except now you get stretched along the line from the Earth to the Moon into two high tidal bulges. And then at the perpendicular positions, where the water is flowing out of, the tidal, out of this region into the high tidal bulge, you get low tide. And so as you sit here at any position on the Earth and you rotate around, you get low tide, high tide, low tide, high tide. The high tides come 12 hours and 25 minutes apart. The low tides come 12 hours and 25 minutes apart because, of course, the whole thing is following the moon as it rotates, as it orbits around the Earth. Here's an example of maximal ocean tides. This is the Bay of Fundy in Canada. Knock the lights down here so it's a little easier to see. And you can see here's the same dock and the same boat. This is at high tide. And then by low tide, the ocean's, actually the ocean's out there. You can see all the shore and estuary, and that boat is basically sitting down on mud flats. Now, I've never had the opportunity to beat, get to the Bay of Fundy. I don't know if any of you here have ever been to the Bay of Fundy and seen this result. It's actually, it's, you know, you've got to do something for tourism in northeastern Canada, and this is actually one of the big tourist attractions. If you've ever been up to coastal Maine, coastal Maine on some of the bays like Booth Bay and places like that also have very dramatic tides. It really smells bad because you get all the rotten stuff out here in the mud. But this is what you get not due to the actual tide being stronger, but due to the fact there's some irregularities in local flow patterns. So, for example, like, like I said, I went to graduate school in Santa Cruz, which is at the north end of Monterey Bay, and there were definitely distinctly different flow patterns in different parts of the bay. And you knew those places where the flow patterns gave you the most dramatic changes in sea level and the most dramatic waves because you'd look and see where the surfers were going. The surfers actually probably knew more about the tidal patterns in Monterey Bay than the astronomers working at all the universities there because they relied on it for, the, for their thrills. Now that's for the moon, right? The moon 
is fairly close to the Earth. It's a massive body. It pulls up differential tides, differential gravity from one side to another. But there's another gra big gravitating body out there, the Sun. The Sun is holding the Earth-Moon system into orbit around the Sun. And it turns out that the Sun being very massive, there is a difference in the tidal, in the gravitational force from the daylit noon side to the midnight side of the Earth. The differential gravity force between day and night due to the Sun turns out in round numbers to be about one half that due to the Moon. So that's why the, the dominant effect on the tides is due to the Moon. The Moon's tides are two times larger than the Sun's tides. But the Sun's tides are there, but they introduce a subtle effect which plays itself out not on the scale of moonrise to moonrise, that 24-hour and 50-minute period, but plays itself out on the cycle of lunar phases. Spring tides are the highest of the high tides. These occur when the sun and moon are lined up at full moon. So the tidal bulge due to the moon and the tidal bulge due to the sun line up exactly and amplify each other. Neap tides are the lowest high tides of the month. Those occur when you are at moon and sun are at 90 degrees, which occurs during first and last quarter moon. There you've got the tidal bulge due to the moon pulling you one way and the tidal bulge due to the sun pulling in the opposite direction and they're actually counteracting each other. The, the moon, lunar high tide is in the direction of solar low tide. Solar high tide is in the direction of lunar low tide because the moon is twice as strong as the sun. They almost but not quite cancel out. So spring tides are twice a month at new moon and full moon, twice a lunar month. And neap tides are twice a lunar month at first and last quarter. Spring tides when the sun and moon act together. Neap tides when the sun and moon act at cross purposes at 90 degrees. Well, here's some picture to amplify that. At full moon, the sun is off to the left and the moon is off to the right at midnight. So I get the tidal bulge of the moon plus the tidal bulge of the sun are lined up and I get the high, high tides, the spring tides. The other two times a month, the sun is off here, and for example, I'm here at last quarter moon, so the moon is down here, towards, away down towards the bottom of the screen in this picture. So the high tide of the sun is pulling this way, but that's the low tide, the low tide of the moon, because the moon is trying to pull the tidal bulge that way. Moon is two times stronger, so moon wins. So the tidal bulge is in the direction, of, in this case, of the last quarter moon, but you've kind of got a little bit of high tide at low lunar tide, and a little bit of low solar tide at high lunar tide, and so you kind of even the tides out. And you get the so-called neap tide twice a month. So again, these things were understood and observed fairly readily. You saw the change of the daily cycle of tides simply following moon rises, that 24-hour and 50-minute period. And then you saw this longer lunar month cycle in which the high tides were real high, always at new moon and full moon, and the lowest high tides occurred at first and last quarter moon. So you got some idea that the moon must be involved, but maybe the sun was involved. And it took a while for people to kind of sort this out. Oops, that showed everything at once. Okay. What are the effects of, these are the effects of the moon tugging on the earth. But remember that the earth is similarly tugging on the moon. So I got the moon here over there on the earth. The Earth is a whole lot bigger than the Moon. The Earth is 81 times the mass of the Moon. So I get the same gravitational force, but the Moon is a smaller body, and I get a big differential force from front side to back side due to that differential force. 
In fact, if I work out the details, I find out that the Earth tides raised in the moon are some 20 times larger than the moon tides raised in the Earth. We've got a combination of a smaller mass body with a bigger body nearby, and that's what gives you the amplified tides. So the tides are really strong on the moon. Now, it's expected a long time ago that the early moon probably rotated much faster than it does today. We, if we were um, you know, an ancient dinosaur, something a very, very long time ago, a couple billion years ago, go back in time and look at the moon, I would actually see the moon rotate. I would actually see the far, si the far side and the near side alternate back and forth. I would see the patterning of the moon pattern change. But as the moon did its rotation, the moon is rotating through its big tidal bulge. That means that the moon has got to have material forces between rock stretching and squeezing that rock. You don't squetch and stretch and squeeze rock without some friction, without some energy and strain being relieved. So every time the moon would rotate through its tidal bulge, some friction would be generated in, in the moon's body. That friction means that some of the rotational energy of the moon was getting robbed to make rock grind against other rock in the tidal bulge. And so the energy loss causes the moon's rotation to slow. As the moon slowed in its rotation, it would still turn through its own tidal bulge, but now it would be turning more slowly, and so the moon would be able to stretch and creak into that bulge easier, so you would lose less energy. Eventually, you reach the point that you turn to where you lock, and you're exactly synchronized with the rotation of the moon and its orbit. Now the moon's body no longer turns through the tidal bulge, and so it synchronizes and locks. In order for the moon to turn more slowly or to start turning more rapidly, I would have to push the moon's body through its own tidal bulge, and all the friction generated in the body of the moon would resist that. So once you actually slow down to match the orbital period, the friction stops, and the system, we say, relaxes tidally. But it does so in such a way that the moon now rotates at exactly the orbital speed, and this rotation is exactly matched so that the moon is no longer turning through its own tidal bulge. So if you looked at the moon in detail, you would find the moon is not a sphere. The moon is, in fact, stretched towards the Earth. And you would see that stretch always pointing to a first approximation back at the Earth, all along that Earth-Moon line. And that's what's locked. It literally is grabbing the moon by the nose and holding it. The, moon's, the Earth's tides are literally grabbing the moon by the nose and keeping its face pointed always towards the Earth. So the moon got locked into synchronous rotation by this process. It's not some cosmic accident that the Earth and the moon is rotating at exactly its orbital period. It is a consequence of the dynamical evolution of the early Earth-Moon system. In fact, you can kind of work out, because of the way the rotation and stuff works, that the moon was actually probably closer to the Earth when it originally happened because the deformation of the moon is actually bigger than it would be in its current location. It got frozen in as the moon solidified from a molten state. So there's a lot of nifty clues you can get to what's going on in the solar system by seeing what dynamical state, what state of rotation and orbit a particular thing is in. And this is one signpost of that, Seeing tidally locked synchronous rotation is a signpost of a system having relaxed into that kind of synchronization. It isn't born that way. Now, a similar friction process occurs on the Earth. Okay? The Earth is rotating faster than the moon orbits. We rotate through our tidal bulge. 
That means there's going to be two sources of friction at play because the Earth is both a semi-solid body, it's actually a rocky shell with a semi-molten interior, and a liquid outer coating, the ocean, which has a much stronger response to the tides. The friction between the oceans and the seafloor, as you get these tidal flows in and out of the bulge as the seafloor and the ocean turns through the tidal bulge every day, actually generates a friction. It's actually a friction force as if those two big liquid tidal bulges on the Earth were acting like a pair of brake pads, pressing on the otherwise undistorted solid body of the Earth. As a consequence, the direction of rotation actually drags the ocean bulge 10 degrees out in front of the moon. So the oceans don't want to be lined. So if you looked at the tidal bulge of the oceans, they wouldn't be pointing exactly at the moon because the Earth is rotating beneath. It drags it a little bit, and so the Earth has actually got its tidal bulge lined up by 10 degrees. So if you said, ah, it's, it's full moon, the highest high tide will be at, mi at midnight when the full moon is highest in the sky. It's actually going to occur a little bit off when the moon is 10 degrees away from the meridian because of this eastward direction of rotation causing the tides to get out in front of the, 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 the normal Earth-Moon line by 10 degrees. So this friction is not only causing the, the ocean tidal bulges to be dragged forward, this friction, as I said before, is acting as a brake pad upon the Earth. What this causes is energy to be robbed from the Earth's rotation. If you rob energy from a rotating object, you make it rotate more slowly. So you get a very, very slow breaking of the Earth. You literally are breaking it through the tides, and the day is actually getting longer. Now, it's not a lot, because the Earth is really big, it's got a lot of rotational energy, and the brake pads aren't that efficient. It only amounts to basically a change of 2.3 milliseconds of increase in the length of the day per century. Well, that's tiny, but remember, we have atomic clocks capable of measuring to the nanosecond. So in fact, it's perfectly measurable. Furthermore, the Earth has been around for a lot of centuries, which means the rotation speed in the past was actually the day was shorter. The Earth was rotating faster in the past, distant past. The Earth will be rotating slower in the distant future, and the day will actually be longer in present day hours. This effect is called tidal breaking. We can actually see this effect in progress. The moon we see locked in from a long time ago, but we can see this tidal breaking process occurring on the Earth now, and you can actually track and measure year after year this change of the length of the day. Now, it turns out that while there is a general continuous trend, it isn't perfect. So here's kind of the picture of geometry we've got now. Again, I've not drawn it to scale. The Earth is rotating around towards the east. The tidal bulge is getting dragged by this, so it leads the moon by 10 degrees. The tidal bulge is getting dragged forward by this motion of the Earth. The ocean tides get dragged in the direction of rotation, so the tidal bulge point is there instead of directly on the Earth-Moon line. But this leads to an interesting effect. Not only does it cause the Earth to slow down and slowly break as the brake pads squeeze on the Earth or the oceans, this means there's a big mass of water which is out of ahead of the Earth-Moon line. Now, what happens if you've got a big mass out here? Well, gravity is going to cause a force. That force is going to lead to an acceleration. That acceleration is slightly ahead of the Moon. So it's like the Moon is getting a slight tug forward on its orbit. That tug forward 
is going to be seen as a slight forward acceleration. And what do we just see in this morning's question? When I give an orbiting object a slight forward acceleration, it tries to move into a slightly larger elliptical orbit. As the moon moves into a slightly larger elliptical orbit, it still sees that tidal bulge out in front of it. It gets tugged forward, and so the Earth is getting the moon is giving the Earth tidal drifted tidal bulge is giving the moon's little tugs forward, making it move a little faster, making its orbit move outwards continually in a slow spiraling, increasing elliptical size. This process of the moon getting accelerated forward because the Earth's bulge leads the moon is called lunar recession. The moon feels a slight forward gravitational tug from the tidal bulge of the ocean and the Earth. You get a net forward acceleration, and if an object in a near circular orbit is given a forward acceleration, it moves into a slightly larger elliptical orbit. And so the effect is that the moon is actually slowly moving away from the center of the Earth. We can actually measure it. It's 3.8 centimeters per year by about that much, by about a couple fingers width. Now, that doesn't seem like a whole lot in 340,000 kilometers, but remember, it's going to operate for billions of years. It turns out we can actually measure this. This number isn't made up or calculated. It's actually measured using Doppler laser ranging between the Earth and the moon. Here's how they did it. The Apollo 11, 14, and 15 astronauts and the Soviet robotic probes, Lunokhod 1 and 2, carried on them little retro-reflector rays, kind of the super high-priced, high-efficiency version of a, of a reflector spot for a bicycle. Basically, it's an array of little mirrors that perfectly reflect a light signal back. And they were left down on the surface, pointed up towards the Earth. From a telescope in, in McDonnell Observatory, they fire a laser through the telescope at the moon. That laser beam flies up to the moon, hits the retroreflector array, and flies back. By measuring the time that the laser beam left the Earth, out and back takes a couple of seconds. But we can measure things on Earth to microseconds. So you see a slight difference over time. It takes longer for that signal to come back to the Earth because the moon's moving further away. These things are really cool to see. I spent a year at McDonald Observatory as a postdoc, and when I observed on the, on the 2.7 meter telescope, they had the laser ranging telescope up to take these measurements on all these sites whenever they were, they were doing, whenever the moon was in the right position. We couldn't observe at that time because the laser was so bright. But one of the guys actually let me uh, drive, as it were. You actually targeted across the moon and you hit the trigger on this little hand paddle to fire the laser, and if you actually got a return signal, it would ring a little bell, ping. So it was like playing a video game. You were shooting the moon with a laser and watching the reflection back. Over time, we've been able to measure in detail this 3.8 centimeters per year is an actual measurement. The moon is actually moving away because of this slow forward acceleration. Now, the combination of tidal breaking and lunar recession are coupled. The rotation energy that's being robbed from the Earth as it spins slower is essentially being given to the moon and causing it to orbit faster. So there's an exchange of energy between the Earth and the moon through the action of the tides. The Earth rotates slower and the moon moves outwards. If we let this operate for a few billion years, the moon is going to get about 50% further away than it is today. At that point, the lunar sidereal month will be 47 days long. It'll take 47 days for the moon to complete one orbit with respect to the stars. But in that same many billion years, the Earth's rotation period will also be 47 days because it will have slowed down from one day 
to 47 days. And when that happens, the Earth, the Moon, and their orbits will all be locked into a tidal resonance. And now, instead of the Moon sort of always keeping one face towards the Earth, the Moon and the Earth will literally be holding each other tidally by the ears and turning around like this. Well, okay, a lot slower than this because it would take 47 days to go around, but day to night would be 47 present time days long. This is where our language gets a bit of funny. A day is a unit of time from noon to noon, but it's tied to the rotation of the Earth. So whenever I speak of the day becomes 47 days long, that means 47 right now 2001 days, or 2000 days is usually the standard for that. This is an example of what I've called dynamical evolution. Tidal phenomena like this are seen throughout the solar system. They're extremely important. We see things of tidal resonances determining rotation periods. The moon is one example. We'll see it again on Mercury, now in tides with the sun. We're going to see tidal locking, literally that two planets tidally grabbing themselves by the ears and rotating around. The Pluto-Charon system is in fact a double planet where they are literally locked together face-to-face, -to -face, orbiting around each other face-to-face. -face. We're going to see tidally induced heating, this friction writ large actually heating the interiors of objects in Io around Jupiter and Triton around Neptune and in many of the moons of, 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 of Saturn, even the moon Enceladus is producing volcanoes and fountains on the surfaces of these objects. Tides are one essential piece of dynamical evolution. Understanding the action of tides is one of the keys to unlocking the history of the solar system. And we're going to see the last set of those keys in tomorrow's lecture when we talk about the gravitational interactions among all the planets. <laughs>